The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. In the 2000 uh, movie, The Gladiator, um, the General Maximus, played by Russell Crowe, is the son that the Emperor Marcus Aurelius uh, always wished that he had but didn't. On the other hand, his actual son, Commodus, played by Joaquin Phoenix, uh, is a great disappointment to his father, failing to become the man that he hoped he would be. And so I just want to, as I start the message today, and we're talking about David and Absalom and this dysfunctional relationship between father and son, uh, a couple of scenes from this movie that also revolves around a father and son of Marcus Aurelius' decision basically to choose Maximus instead of Commodus to rule the Roman Empire after his uh, death. And so let's take a look at that and then we'll go on. There is one more duty that I ask of you before you go home. What would you have me do, Caesar? I want you to become the protector of Rome after I die. I will empower you to one end alone, to give power back to the people of Rome and end the corruption that has crippled it. you accept this great honor that I have offered you? With all my heart, no. Maximus, that is why it must be you. But surely a prefect, a senator, somebody who knows the city, who understands her politics. But you have not been corrupted by her politics. And Commodus? Commodus is not a moral man. You have known that since you were young. Commodus cannot rule. He must not rule. You are the son that I should have had. Commodus will accept my decision. He knows that you command the loyalty of the army. Which wiser older man is to take my place? My powers will pass to Maximus to hold in trust until the Senate is ready to rule once more. Rome is to be a republic again. Maximus. Yes. 
My decision disappoints you. You wrote to me once, listing the four chief virtues. Wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance. As I read the list, I knew I had none of them. But I have other virtues, Father. Ambition. That can be a virtue when it drives us to excel. Resourcefulness. Courage. Perhaps not on the battlefield, but there are many forms of courage. Devotion. To my family. To you. But none of my virtues won your list. Even then, it was as if you didn't want me for your son. Oh, Commodus. You go too far. I search the faces of the gods for ways to please you, to make you proud. One kind word, one full hug. You pressed me to your chest and held me tight. Would have been like the sum of my heart for a thousand years. What is this enemy you hate so much? All I've ever wanted was to live up to Caesar, father. Commodus? Your false as a son is my failure as a father. I don't know if you could hear the audio that well in that clip, but it's probably one of the most painful exchanges imaginable between a father and son, where Commodus says, I searched the faces of the gods for ways to please you, to make you proud. One kind word, one full hug, while you pressed me to your chest and held me tight, would have been like the sun on my heart for a thousand years. What is it in me that you hate so much? All I ever wanted was to live up to you, Caesar, Father. To which Marcus Aurelius replies, Comet is your faults as a son, is my failure as a father. Last week, we looked at how sin gets passed down from one generation to the next. Like our height or the color of our eyes, sadly, we pass down our brokenness and our sin to the next generation. Patrick McCormick says, We live in a world in which sin is a deadly and contagious virus. 
Parents pass sin on to their children. Teachers instruct their pupils in it. Governments lead their peoples into it. From generation to generation, sin is passed from one heart to another like a deadly and insidious contagion. The heart of the tragedy here is that in some way, the sin of the parents have become the sins of the children. The children imitate their parents in their idolatry, their injustice. The new and fresh generations are in some way tainted with all of the malice and wickedness of their elders. When this generation dies off, evil will not die with it, but will be passed on to the next generation. What a bleak way of putting it, right? It's a disturbing thought that our sins will outlive us because we will pass them on to our children. But we see the truth of these words witnessed in David's family, don't we? His bad behavior as a husband and a father become mirrored in the bad behavior of his children. His eldest son, Amnon, will violate his half-sister, Tamar. And in an act of vengeance, Absalom will kill Amnon, brother, killing brother. And through it all, David seems to be lost and clueless as to how to respond to the chaos that is unfolding in his family. David Wolpe writes, A vain and self-involved child, speaking of Absalom, meets an ineffective parent. David is unable to provide the sort of consistent, steady, boundaried, but deep love that is a parent's job. With Amnon, he was vastly overindulgent. With Tamar, he was seemingly absent. With Absalom, he is repeatedly harsh and remote. And so after Absalom uh, kills Amnon, he flees to his grandparents' village where he holds away up there for three years. And David finally, after three years, permits Absalom to return to Jerusalem, but as a footnote, he forbids his son to enter into his presence. And his father's rejection of him becomes unbearable. And so after two years of this, Absalom says that he would rather have David judge him and put him to death than to continue to be shunned by his father in this way. And so finally, David relents and allows Absalom to enter into his presence. But as we saw last week, this encounter with his father would not be the reconciliation that Absalom longed for. Rather than a warm embrace of a father... He was met by the cold reception of a king. David, in other words, as we saw last week, refused to offer to his son the same mercy and forgiveness that God had shown to him for committing essentially the same sin. And it's easy to be hard on David, but I think we can all identify with David's struggle, can't we? Haven't we all had moments in our life struggled to be vulnerable, refusing to make the first move toward reconciliation, refusing to forgive? Haven't we at times hardened our own hearts towards someone we love, even though we can see how much it is hurting them? Sadly, in our broken world, struggles like this are not the exception, but the norm. People who genuinely love one another but are unable to do what is needed to make reconciliation with one another possible. 
All of those words of healing left unsaid. All those tender gestures never experienced. All while we drift further and further apart from one another. As coldness and hardness settles in our hearts. And so, with that hope of true reconciliation, just about dead, something also seems to have died in Absalom's heart. No longer does he want to be restored in his relationship with his father David. Now he wants to overthrow him. And so Absalom begins to plant seeds of discontentment in the hearts of the Israelites, pointing out all of his father's flaws as king. And after four years of this, Absalom finally feels that the time is right for him to make his move. And so he goes to Hebron under the guise of worshiping God, but it's all part of his coup. And so 2 Samuel 15, verse 10 through 12, it says this, Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. So now the plot is fully underway to overthrow David. And the story continues in verse 13. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him along with all the Carathites and Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marching before the king. So David realizes that his son Absalom has won the hearts of the people. And so he makes the difficult decision to abandon the capital and flee into the wilderness. The Carathites and the Parathites were foreign mercenaries hired by David. It's like his personal guard. That's why they went with him. They're not Israelites. And then the Gittites were basically Philistines that must have come out with David from that time that he lived in Philistia in Gath, and they came out with him to join him in Jerusalem. So they also are foreigners. And so with this group of mostly foreign fighters... David will now travel roughly 26 miles eastward toward Jericho, roughly the distance of a marathon race, until he will reach the Jordan River where it empties into the Dead Sea. And he's going to enter into the deep wilderness there. And the focus of these two chapters, chapters 15 and 16, are on these five encounters that David has on this journey. And so I want to look at four out of these five encounters briefly to see what we can learn from them. 
I'm going to skip over Ziba because I already talked about Ziba when I preached the message on Mephibosheth. And so if you want to hear about Ziba, you can just go to the podcast and listen to that main, uh, message. My main focus, in fact, today is going to be on two people in this list, which are going to be Zadok and Shimei, okay? The first encounter is with a man named Ittai. In verses 19 to 22, it says this, The king said to Ittai the, the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner in exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going. Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it, is, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. I don't want to make too much of a point of this first encounter, but I think what it does illustrate is the incredible loyalty and devotion that people felt toward David. They were willing to follow him even to his death. This story reminds me of another story when David, when he was holed up in the cave of Adullam during his first exile, in the wilderness, just in passing, mentioned how he longed to drink water from the well that is in Bethlehem. And three of his mighty men, overhearing his longing, actually went to Bethlehem and single-handedly broke through the Philistine ranks and got a flask of water and brought it back to him and said, drink. And when David realized that they had actually risked their lives to get him this drink, he couldn't bring himself to drink it. I don't know how they felt about it, but he actually poured the water into the ground as an offering to God saying, I cannot drink this water. But that's the kind of devotion that David seems to have garnered everywhere he went in his life. The bottom line is he was a charismatic leader, and people would give up everything for him. Well, after this encounter, we're told in verse 23, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. If you've been following the series, we know that for over a decade when he was younger, David lived in the wilderness, running away from Saul. And now as a middle-aged man, he finds himself with another ragtag group of misfits and once again is chased into the wilderness, this time by his own son, Absalom. I imagine David thinking something like this as he's going into the wilderness. Man, I am too old for this, you know? And what I want to argue is this, that by all indications when you read the text carefully, these last several chapters... I think a pretty clear conclusion is drawn that David is not doing well spiritually at all in these later seasons of his life. We all know what David is like when he is doing well, when he's fully alive to God, when his faith is strong. In those days, David is at his best. He's unafraid to face Goliath because he knows God is with him. He refuses to kill Saul when Saul is handed to him right there because he entrusts his future into God's hands. This is David at his best. But in his later years, we actually find a very different David, don't we? This is David choosing to relax in his palace 
rather than to lead his armies into battle. This is David using the power of his kingship to take another man's wife. This is David as an inept and absent father after the rape of his daughter and a cold, unforgiving father to his son Solomon, which leads to his son's rebellion. During this time, except maybe for the one exception of when he prays for Bathsheba's pregnancy after their affair, for the life of that child. Aside from that one single incident, there's almost no mention of David seeking God or David praying. Do you guys know about this song called Baby Shark? <laughs> uh, in the last two years, I guess it's become something of a social phenomenon. And YouTube, that YouTube video of it, has almost 3.5 billion views. That's insane. Artists like John Legend and Josh Groban have done covers of it. And I did not know that this video even existed until a couple days ago. I felt so dumb, okay? Can I ask, how many of you knew about this Baby Shark song? Come on, all of you? Really? Who did not know about Baby Shark? Okay, I feel a little better. Okay, all right. Um, when I found out about the song, I was like, where was I for the last two years? I, I generally pride myself in knowing what's going on in the world. And I said, how could a YouTube video have over three billion hits and I've never even heard of this song? Um, I got the sense that that kind of describes what David was like <laughs> during this season in his life. He, he's utterly clueless to what's going on in his own kingdom. His son is slandering him in the city gate and turning his entire kingdom against him. And David doesn't even seem to be aware of it. It's as if he has totally checked out, disengaged with the things that actually matter in life, like family and kingship. And I think there's a lesson to be learned here. I think what we can say is this. Getting everything you want is the worst thing that could happen to you, okay? Getting everything you want is the worst thing that could happen to you. I think the truth is we're all trying to get to those greener pastures, But the truth is that those greener pastures are often far more dangerous than we realize. For over a decade, David endured a difficult life in the wilderness, always waiting patiently for the day when he could return to civilization and claim the throne that was rightfully his. But when he finally got what he had been waiting for and life became easy, it seems that David also lost his hunger for God and for the things that really mattered. And not surprisingly, his spiritual life took a nosedive. What's so fascinating is that David at his best is David in the wilderness. That is David at his best. In other words, so much of what made David David was forged in the wilderness, in difficulties, in trials. And so what does God do? He takes 
David, and he sends him back to the wilderness to recover what was lost and to find himself again. But more importantly, to find God again. We see this playing out in this next encounter with Zadok, the priest. We see David becoming more and more awakened to God, the reality of God in his life. In verses 24 to 26, it says, Zadok was there too, and all the Levites were with him, were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. As you may know, the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box gilded in gold. And it contained these stone tablets that God carved for Moses, the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod that miraculously budded, as well as a jar of manna from the wilderness. And it was a powerful symbol of God's power and his presence among his people. And years earlier, as you guys may know that story, the Israelites actually tried to manipulate God by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the battlefield against the Philistines, thinking that that would surely guarantee their victory militarily. But God said, I will not be manipulated in that way. And the Israelites were routed, and the Ark was taken captive by the Philistines. And after being displaced for many years, David would finally bring that ark back into Jerusalem uh, where it became the center of worship. And so now the priests believe that the only right thing to do is to bring the ark with David because he's the rightful king of Israel. And with Absalom challenging his claim to the throne, having that ark in his camp would have sent a really strong message to a confused and divided nation, that this is the legitimate king of this kingdom. But David refuses to do this. He refuses to use God's name to strengthen his own reputation or to engineer his own outcome. And so God tells the priest Zadok, take it back. Take it back to Jerusalem. And he says, listen, If God really is with me, I don't need the ark with me. God will let me see the ark in Jerusalem once again. But if God is not with me, then let his judgment fall on me. In fact, David seems open to that possibility that this civil war with his son could be God's judgment on him, as it says in verse 26. And so as the priests head back to Jerusalem with the ark, we find this further commentary in verses 30 to 31. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered as he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Ahithophel was David's closest advisor and was regarded in all of Israel as one of the wisest men alive. Ahithophel would have given legitimacy to Absalom's claim for kingship. 
And so of all of the defections in his kingdom, I think Ahithophel's betrayal was likely the one that hurt David the most, the one that he took most personally. Ahithophel would be a central figure in the chapters that lie ahead. But for the point of this message today, I think the important thing is this to note, is that Ahithophel's betrayal would lead David to the response of prayer and dependency on God. David realizing how much damage the single man was capable of causing to his claim to kingship feels utterly helpless to do anything about that. And so he turns to God in prayer and he says, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. It's believed that David also wrote Psalm 55 during this time. And many scholars believe that in the psalm, David is actually referring specifically to Ahithophel's betrayal. As it says in verses 1 to 2 and 12 to 14, Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me, and I am distraught. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide it. I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. This is David taking his deep pain at this betrayal and turning it into prayer to God. Comfort me in this pain, O Lord. Psalm 3 is another psalm that David wrote during this time. And it reads in verses 1 to 6, the psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. I, Lord, how many times, uh, uh, Lord, how many times are my foes? Uh, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I called out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. What I see in these psalms and in these prayers is David coming alive to God once again. Through these psalms, we see a man that is recovering the life of prayer, a life of dependency on God. The third encounter is with this man named Hushai. In verses 32 to 37, and it says, When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, Your majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priests Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimaz, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So Hushai, David's confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. Hushai was an advisor like Ahithophel. And so rather than taking Hushai with him, David tells him, you will do me more service if you go back to Jerusalem. And there, join Absalom's court and act as my spy and interfere with Ahithophel's advice. 
And by this point now, what the text tells us is that David has now about a half dozen men who are basically acting like spies in Absalom's government, who are his eyes and ears, as well as there to basically mess up Absalom's plans. What I see so interesting about this complex picture is this, that even as David is learning dependency on God, he is still using his cunning, his skills and his abilities that God has given him shrewdly to deal with the situation of the rebellion of his son. And I think there's a lesson there for us too, which is that dependency on God doesn't mean that we just sit on our hands and do nothing and live a passive life just waiting There is, in other words, great wisdom to discern when we must act and when we must wait on God. The life of dependency on God doesn't mean we just sit idle and do nothing. But it means that we recognize when the choices that we're making and the actions that we're taking are an expression of that dependency on him or an expression of our lack of trust and faith. In him. But this is the complexity of the life that David demonstrates to us, is at times he would act very shrewdly, very cunningly, and yet other times he seemed to recognize only God can change these circumstances. Well, now I want to direct you to really where I want to put the most focus is this final encounter with this man named Shimei. Verses 5 through 14 of chapter 16 reads like this. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all of his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him, showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. Now, we're told that this guy Shimei comes from Saul's family, Saul's clan. And so he clearly has a bias in his judgment on David. He clearly saw David's kingship as illegitimate, believing that David had stolen the throne from Saul's family. 
And so now that David is getting a taste of his own medicine, Shimei heats insults on David, accusing him of getting what he deserves. So David's nephew, Abishai, is totally offended on David's behalf. And he offers a quick and simple solution. He says, just say the word and I'll go cut the guy's head off. I'll decapitate him. But what's so interesting to me is this, is that David could see beyond the flawed messenger and recognize that there was a message that he needed to hear that day. And so he tells his nephew, leave this guy alone because God is using him to speak a word of rebuke to me. I've mentioned over and over again in this series that David is not given to us as a role model. And I realize some of you have actually approached me a little upset and said, I will never look at David the same way again because you actually make him look like a horrible guy, you know? You've put him in such a negative light. Um, I'll take some of that blame, but... I don't know. It's right there in the Bible. I don't know what to do. But let me say this. If there is one thing we can all learn from David, if there is one thing that we can say was special about this man, it is this, that he excelled at listening to criticism with a teachable heart. I mean, you think you've had to endure some pretty bad sermons, It doesn't get any worse than this, the one that David had to listen to that day. At least no preacher ever threw dirt and rocks at you (laughs) to get his point across. And yet the remarkable thing is this, that David listened. David had enough humility and self-awareness to recognize the truth when it was being spoken to him. What I want to say about that is this. Even a flawed messenger may have truth about ourselves that we need to hear. Amen? Yeah, very tepid. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know why I say this is because this. Our natural instinct is to attack the messenger, isn't it? When anyone has anything negative to say about us, we immediately mount a defense and we poke holes in their argument. And the truth is that that's not hard to do because the person that is criticizing us probably has just as many faults and inconsistencies as you do that you could point out in their lives. But I think this, David was able to submit to Shimei's insults with humility Because he heard God's voice underneath it and knew this, that God always wanted good for him. David never forgot the covenant God made with him. God's promise that his love would never leave his family and that he would establish David's throne forever. And so I want to add another point to that is this, a finer point. People who attack and criticize us always have mixed motives. 
But God's motive is always love. Do you hear what I'm saying? The truth is this. People who rebuke you will often rebuke you out of irritation and anger rather than out of a desire to help you. That's true. That's true. And that person's agenda may not be driven by any actual concern for you and your welfare, but more out of a desire to just give you a piece of their mind. But this is what I'm saying. Faith enables us to see that God may be using an imperfect messenger to communicate something we nevertheless need to hear. And we never have to question God's motives because his motive is always love. His motive is always your good. I think that was the wisdom of David. That was what made David so unique. He never got into a debate with these people who confronted him. Never fought with them. Never tried to poke holes in their argument. But he said, this is God speaking to me. Even through this ridiculous fool who's throwing rocks at me. And who has a clearly vested interest in me not being king. This guy is so off. He is so wrong. But what David saw was, there is truth in this. That God is speaking to me. And so we can say this, when you experience struggles, conflicts, and criticisms, always listen for God's voice. We've seen what wild swings David will go through in his life, right? Like I said earlier, when he is at his best, he is capable of awe-inspiring feats of faith. But the thing about David, which is so complex, is that when David is bad, he is really bad. I mean, he is really bad. In this way, David is no better than us. But what makes David special is that in those lowest points in his life, he kept believing in God's promises of love and commitment to him. And that is why David always repented. He always came back to God. You see, I think David understood that the second wilderness time was not like the first. Because he realized that this second time in the wilderness is largely a result of his own weaknesses and failures and sins as a leader and as a father. And that's the truth, isn't it? Is that sometimes our wilderness experiences are of our own making. But nevertheless, he saw God's grace to him. Believing that even in this discipline was God's love for him. To restore a wayward heart. Eugene Peterson writes, Suffering doesn't always or easily make us better. It often makes us worse. It could have made David worse. He could have become defiant and bitter and lonely. But he didn't. He became again what we now look back on as characteristically David. Humble, prayerful, and compassionate. One of the unique things about David is that suffering always seemed to make him better. 
It always drew him closer to God. And the truth is that that is not true of most of us. Most of us don't endure suffering or criticism well. We don't learn. We don't grow. And so we need to have the faith that David had, that God is always for me. And the truth is, the older we get, the harder it is to be humble like this, isn't it? I'm too old for this. I should be beyond this by now, but I'm not. But the secret of King David was this. Even in my greatest failures, even in my deepest sin, God always wants my best. He will never abandon me. He always wants my good. As Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That is the confidence with which we can hear the criticism of somebody who has just as many faults as we do and yet still have the humility to say, even in this, this is God's love for me. Let's pray. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a couple minutes here and take communion together as a church family. And as we get ready to do that, I just want to invite you to just a brief moment of prayerful reflection in your life. I wonder if some of you may be in the same kind of season that David found himself in in middle life, middle age life. You know, maybe there was a time when you were actually very teachable, very humble, very adventurous to go on this great adventure of discipleship and learning from God and his kingdom, his lordship. But maybe you find yourself in this season of life where you've just disengaged, disconnected. Life just isn't that exciting. The things that once got you up in the morning ready to tackle the day just don't do it for you anymore. And there's this sort of this coldness, this hardness, this numbness that has settled in your heart. And maybe God is reaching out to you today. And maybe the truth is God has been trying to speak to you, but the problem is all of his messengers are just so imperfect. And so the truth is the voice of God is all around you through circumstances, through people that love you and trying to speak into your life. And all you do is fight everyone. All you do is debate and accuse and retaliate. Maybe the truth is it's your heart. No one can speak into your life, not even God himself. What my prayer for my own heart and for your heart this morning is this. God, give me a humble and broken, a contrite heart, a spirit that is still teachable even into the later days of my life. I want to learn. I want to grow. I don't want to just coast. I pray that that is your prayer this morning. Would you just pray that? And our worship team will come and lead us in a song of response, after which we'll come to the Lord's table.